0: Well, it's good to see all of you, the brave souls who are still venturing outside. Uh, welcome to the first Tuesday of Daylight Saving Time. Um, how are you all feeling? That good, huh? Wow. Uh, waking up Sunday and Monday was hard. Um, it was really hard. I think get, maybe it gets harder and harder as you get older. Um, waking up today, I was okay. But it's totally worth it. Um, look out like it's still light outside, we're like halfway done. It's still light outside. It might even still be light outside by the time we're done, especially if I hurry up. Um, my whole being shifts in the time change and, and when, um, when winter finally gives way to spring. Uh... Like, everything changes, which I honestly don't love. Uh, I wish I was just always like this and not so seasonally dependent. Um, but I love the way I feel when the sun is out longer in the evenings. I love the way I feel when, when spring comes back to life, when it starts to rain again. Oh, I walked outside on Monday, Monday morning, um, and it was, like, dark, and it, was, it smelled like rain. And my grass was green for some reason. And it just felt like it was the middle of summer. And, like, even my backyard to me looks completely different if I think it's summertime. Uh, I love it. I love it. I feel great. I feel great tonight. And I hope you do, too. But I also, therefore, feel a little bit ambivalent about the topic that we're talking about tonight. Because it's a heavy one. Like, I finally feel good. And then it's time to talk about the week where we talk about mourning. We're going to talk about those who mourn. We're going to talk about those who who know loss and grief and suffering, which is all of us to some degree, right? We've all experienced um, loss. We've all experienced suffering. Maybe you've been betrayed by a a friend or a family member or a significant other. Maybe you know what it feels like to have a job fall out from under you, um, or you're laid off or you're fired. Maybe you know uh, that helpless anguish you feel when your mental or physical health fails you. Maybe you know the agony that seems to never go away when you lose someone that you love. Or the pain that comes from losing yourself to addiction and its, its destructive consequences. We've all experienced some kind of loss and mourning and suffering. And Jesus has something to say about this in his second beatitude. This is Matthew 5 verse 4. It's a long one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's not really long. Just because it's a heavy night doesn't mean we can't have a little bit of fun. Don't worry. If you remember from last week, the Beatitudes are uh, the intro to Jesus' sermon on the mount. His most complete and longest sermon where he basically lays out everything that he thinks. And immediately before giving the sermon, again, if you remember last week, Jesus is traveling around um, Israel... And healing people left and right. He's drawing a huge crowd following him, and he begins to teach this crowd. He begins speaking to this incredibly diverse crowd made up of Jews and Gentiles, of rich and poor, of incredibly religious people and incredibly not religious people, of upstanding people and people who were outcasts in their society. And to this massive, diverse crowd, made up mostly of people who would never describe themselves as blessed, Jesus pronounces blessings. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourn here um, could maybe, to our ears today, be better described as brokenhearted. It is an active thing. It is a state of being. This is real, deep, deep, active, life-defining sadness um, caused by any form of misery, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, whatever. And this is who Jesus says is blessed. If you remember again from last week, blessed, that word carries a sense of being fortunate, of of enjoying a kind of divine solidarity. Blessed carries a sense of uh, God is on your side. So blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Comforted. Even today, this sounds weird. It sounds strange to us, especially when people translate blessed as happy. Happy are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. That just makes all sorts of no sense. So it's weird to us today, and it, was, it would have been even more strange sounding to his audience at the time. It would have been just as jarring as if you remember... Um, his first statement last week that we looked at. His audience would have thought, okay, blessed are the poor in spirit. Nope, that doesn't make sense. And now, blessed are those who mourn. Their mourning, their suffering, their pain means that they've done something wrong. The belief of the day is is reflected in what uh, we find written in the Talmud, which is uh, a, a written record of Jewish oral law and Jewish commentary on the scriptures. And in that, the Talmud states, there is no death without sin and no suffering without iniquity. What this means is, if someone's in mourning, if someone's suffering, it's because of sin. It's because either they sinned or their ancestors sinned. In the end, it was someone's fault, usually your own, that you were in this state of mourning. The idea was so widespread and so largely ubiquitous that even the most common people like the disciples just naturally held to this idea. It was so ingrained in the culture. We see in a a scene in the book of John, Jesus and the disciples come across a man who uh, they say has been um, blind since he was born. He was born blind. And the disciples immediately asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because obviously, if he's blind... Clearly someone sinned. So was it him or his parents? And Jesus rejects that notion entirely and says, neither. The man's suffering is not the consequence of and has no connection to anyone's sin. Now, there are definitely other places um, in the Gospels where Jesus does link specific people's suffering to their sins. And then in others, he does what we just saw from that story of John, and he deconstructs any notion of the connection between suffering and sin. Sometimes they're connected, sometimes they're not. All this means is that we can't absolutize um, any relationship between suffering and sin. Just because someone is suffering doesn't mean it's a result of their sin. Jesus is addressing the same idea here in the second beatitude. He's confronting the same idea that suffering means you have sinned by saying, Those who mourn, those who are suffering, are blessed. Like we saw last week, Jesus is still, in just the intro, in just the second statement of his intro, completely turning things upside down. Frederick Bruner writes For the second time, Jesus puts himself on the side of outsiders, of those who aren't doing very well, of seeming failures. Similarly, Jesus is legitimizing grief. He's legitimizing grief as an important expression and condition of life. He shows it isn't something necessarily that that we're just supposed to try to hurry up and fix or cure or hide or run away from in ourselves or from in others. Um, But often it's a fact of reality, a fact of reality that doesn't necessarily say anything about what God thinks about that person or their moral standing or their life choices. Jesus is also proclaiming a new reality here now that he has come. The words that he's using, um, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. He's using those words on purpose. He's alluding back to prophecies about who the Messiah would be from the old Testament. Jesus is saying, I'm that person that you've been waiting for. And this is what I've come to do. Comfort those who suffer. And then he backs that up in his actions Um, Like I said earlier, he has literally just been healing tons and tons of people right before he says this, which is, I would think, pretty comforting. Throughout his life, he heals the sick, he heals the blind, he heals the crippled, he raises people from the dead, um, which might not be comforting, but he restores the rejected, he restores the downtrodden, he binds up the brokenhearted, he comforts. And so this is a a recurring theme throughout the book of Matthew. In the presence and person of Jesus, a unique comfort to human suffering is found. In the presence and person of Jesus, a unique comfort to human suffering is found. That's great, right? But there's still this huge glaring question about this whole notion, or at least there was for me, What about when those who mourn and those who grieve and those who suffer aren't comforted? You can probably think of uh, examples where you or someone that you know or someone that you know of has gone uncomforted. I have a friend right now that it seems like the past five years they've been fighting for their life over and over and over again. And when they finally get um, some semblance of the pieces of their life put back together, despite their efforts, it feels like it just all falls apart over and over and over again. There's no comfort for them. Or if there is, it is very short-lived. What's that about? Well, I, I have two observations about that question. First, to comfort doesn't mean to fix or to solve or to magically end someone's mourning or their suffering. To comfort means to ease, definitely, to alleviate. It means to console and to commiserate and to show compassion for, to encourage and to support. It's not a promise of some kind of instantaneous cessation of grief. And at the same time, Jesus is not making a promise here that's solely focused on the future or, or the next life. Um, I've heard and this week read way too many sermons or or books where people say, this is all about heaven. So though your grief may last your entire life, you ultimately will find comfort in the next. So just, you know, hang on. And then when you die, it's going to be great. And I mean, that's a very cynical way to look at it, obviously. And I don't necessarily disagree with the idea that it's going to be great, but how does that help now? It feels like a bit of a cop-out, especially when you remember that in the presence and person of Jesus, a unique comfort to human suffering is found. So this isn't just a promise that that the bad in this life will be uh, outweighed by good in the next. It also, Jesus is not offering some sort of scientific axiom or mathematical proof as statement of fact that's just held out there for us to mentally ascend to. Jesus is making a promise that calls for belief from us, that calls for some kind of trust, that calls for some kind of relationship. As Edward Schweizer writes, Jesus's promise becomes true for whoever will let Jesus tell them that in this very moment, God is becoming reality. I love that quote, and I still don't think I fully understand what it means. I think this is something that every time I come back to it, it will mean something deeper. And this still, yeah, this all sounds great, but the question still remains, why does some mourning and some grief and some suffering seem to go uncomforted? based on what Jesus is saying here. Honestly, and ultimately, I don't know. I try to always be honest with you up here, and so I am now, too. I don't want to give you an empty answer. I don't want to give you a rote response. I don't want to give you a cop-out answer that's like, just hang on, and when you die, it's going to be great. I genuinely don't know why it seems that some suffering goes uncomforted. But here are some things that I do know. First, working through any grief or suffering takes time. And that time varies for every single person and every situation that every single person faces. The lack of any kind of experience of being comforted doesn't mean that God isn't there. If you read the Bible or you even simply just look at your life or the lives of those around you, it becomes really clear, at least to me, that God seems interested Not in sparing us from grief and suffering, but walking alongside us through our pain. Another thing I know is that God is on your side. You are blessed when you are mourning. That's not conditional, that's not conditional with how you handle um, grief. The promise isn't comfort if you handle grief or process grief in a healthy way. The promise isn't you'll be comforted only if your uh, mourning and your grief and your suffering uh, instills compassion in you and not bitterness. There's no conditions. Those who mourn will be comforted. Even in your grief, even if your suffering leads you to hate God at points along the way, or completely lose faith and reject the notion of God altogether, God is still on your side, and you are still promised comfort. God suffers with you. I think one of the most compelling things to me about Christianity is that it points to and reveals a God who suffers. He's not some removed, distant, uncaring deity, but he's intimately involved In our lives, in his uh, book, Redemptive Suffering, William O'Malley has this fantastic line, in Jesus, God became suffering. This is why I think that in Jesus, unique comfort to suffering is also found. Those who have suffered are able to have compassion. Compassion literally means to suffer with. Those who have suffered are able to suffer with those who are now suffering. There's something so, so powerful when in the midst of your pain and darkness, someone can say to you, I know exactly how you feel. Because they've suffered the same way. They can hold you, they can embrace you and simply say, I get it. And there's a deep connection that's there. You trust what they have to say because you know that they feel how you feel. Especially in those moments where you feel like no one understands you. Because no one has gone through this grief or this suffering. Along comes someone who who has suffered. They know what you're going through in ways that no one else can. So it's no wonder why people who have experienced and suffered through a miscarriage feel a sense of connection with others who have also. It's not a mystery why foster and adoptive parents tend to look for and bond to other foster and adoptive parents. There's a unique kind of mourning that takes place in that endeavor. People who have been through a divorce feel more comfortable with others who have also. Tight knit communities often form and pop up around um, between people who have survived a war or a natural disaster or acts of violence. People who have survived trauma or assault um, or addiction are more likely to open up to fellow survivors and fellow addicts. The ways that you have suffered, especially when, when processed in a healthy way, lead to compassion for those who are suffering in similar ways because you understand what they're going through in a way that no one else can. And in the same way, you are far more likely to feel a deep sense of trust with someone who has suffered like you. Because, again, their suffering allows them to understand you, to be there with you in your pain, to, quite literally, comfort you. Jesus can offer comfort because he has suffered. God suffers with you, God is on your side. So, what do we do with all of this? That was like just a bunch of thoughts. And we could keep talking about suffering and God and what we're supposed to do with it forever. What's the too long didn't read version here? Two things to close tonight. The message to those who are mourning, those who are suffering, is that in the person of Jesus, a unique comfort to human suffering is found, and He is on your side. You matter. Your pain matters. He loves you, and we love you, and you are not alone. To those of us who right now are not in a state of mourning, are not suffering, are not experiencing loss, it's up to us to prove that what I just said is true. Again, if a unique comfort to human suffering is found in the person of Jesus, then we need to take seriously our call to be the body of Christ to the world. And to be Jesus to those in mourning, Nt Wright makes a really puts a really fine point on this, writing, "Blessed are the mourners, they shall be comforted. How will the mourners believe that if we are not god 's agents in bringing that comfort so chances are we have experienced some suffering, some mourning, some grief in our lives along the way. We need to um, Leverage those experiences to have compassion for the people that are suffering we need to compassionately move toward them to sit with them in their pain to communicate that we understand that we get it that we're here we need to resist the urge to avoid or abandon people in their pain or to jump in and try to fix or solve someone's pain and suffering instead we need to be with them in solidarity in what they're going through We need to comfort those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Fortunate are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, and God is on their side. We pray with me. God, you draw near to the brokenhearted. You say you bind up the brokenhearted. God, we know from experience that sometimes from our our perception, you take your sweet time in doing that. And maybe we'll know why someday and maybe we never will. But God, I pray that in the midst of waiting for comfort from divine comfort, that we can be a glimpse of or a conduit for that divine comfort to the people around us who are suffering. That we can literally be your representatives to reduce suffering and increase joy. To bless people who are mourning by offering them the comfort that you promise them. I pray that for all of us who are not mourning now, and for all of us who are, I I ask for comfort. I ask for reprieve. And I ask that those experiences would instill in us greater compassion for others, that we may use what we've gone through that was negative or painful or bad or even evil and turn it around for good for others. God, thank you for this place and these people. Thank you for the love and grace that they reflect to me and to each other so clearly. We love you, God. Amen.